0: Well, uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Miles. I'm one of the elders here, uh, and I am excited uh, to be preaching from Isaiah 49 today. If you have your Bibles, you can make your way there. Uh, The title of today's lesson is called A Light for the Nations, and I would like to start the lesson with a single idea, and that idea is that we humans were made for light. Everyone in this room, we were created to be in light. Since the beginning of time, mankind has devoted much of our existence to making sure light was never too far away. In ancient times, this meant appeasing the many sun gods that existed. In the ancient Aztec empire, in modern-day South America, for example, it's estimated that 20,000 humans were sacrificed every year to make their sun god happy. Now, this certainly seems like an extreme act of devotion, but if we turn our attention to another ancient civilization, ancient Egypt, we start to see why. Uh, This is actually a a modern kind of rendition of an ancient Egyptian poem. It was written to their sun god, Aten. It's called the Hymn to Aten, and I'll read the opening lines in, in English. It says, when you, the sun, sink to rest below western horizon, so when the sun sets Earth lies in darkness like death. Sleepers are still in their bedchambers, heads veiled. I cannot spy a companion. Lions come out from the deeps of their cave. Snakes bite and sting. And so to the ancient world, darkness meant death, danger, and loneliness. And in this light, we start to see why such extreme acts of devotion were required to the sun gods, because a life without light was just not a life worth living. Now, as society has progressed, humans came to rely less on our sun gods and more on ourselves, just transferring our devotion to one thing to another. And over the past 200 years, we've done all sorts of things in the name of light. I like this next picture. We've turned birds into candles. It's really happened. We've hunted whales to near extinction. A little bit more recently, we've drilled thousands of holes in our Earth's crust searching for oil to turn into kerosene and even more recently we spend trillions of dollars every year about 20 percent of our electric bill goes into making sure that we are always in the light today you could say that we've become gods of light we can clap our lights off do you guys remember the clapper anyone here i think it was like the 90s and now we can download an app and we can just speak our lights back into existence And when we speak them into existence, they never have to turn off. The newest LED light bulbs that are coming out last 100,000 hours before burning out. That means you could turn the light on and then 4,000 days later, it still would be shining. Just uh, what uh, us, us humans today have done what seemed impossible to the ancient sun gods. We've made it so we can live our entire lives in light. And yet still, despite these efforts, we can't seem to overcome our fear of darkness. About half of all Americans, according to WebMD, still suffer at one point in their lives from nyctophobia. That's the fear of darkness, making it one of the most common phobias in the world. And while this seems childish to be afraid of the dark, the data suggests it's not without reason. Multiple studies suggest that darkness can make humans more likely to, it's a long list, I need water. You ready for this? Darkness makes humans more likely to commit suicide, commit violent crimes, lie, cheat, make mistakes, experience hallucinations, engage in risky behavior like drug abuse, gambling, eat unhealthy foods, perform worse on tests, think pessimistic thoughts, and make rash decisions. Researchers at Harvard University who examined these studies named this phenomenon the mind after midnight hypothesis acknowledging that we become neurologically altered in darkness. In other words, our brains change when we are in dark, and it's not for the better. In 2010, the science of darkness was put to a real-life test when 33 miners from Chile were trapped underneath the ground about a half mile for 69 days. Anyone remember this news story about 13 years ago? And for over two months, they sat and they lived in darkness. And health experts at the time were equally concerned with their mental health as they were with their physical health. And it turns out that these health experts had a good reason to be concerned. A year after their miraculous rescue, 32 of the 33 minors were diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And they suffered from things like nightmares, trouble relating to their children, paranoia, uh, and domestic abuse. Their time in darkness had long-lasting negative impacts on their mental health. All of this, I suggest, proves my initial premise that we, everyone in this room, was created for light. And I'd like to take this idea into our reading today. The plan today is to read Isaiah 49. So hopefully you've made your way there, or turned your phones on. Uh, And we're going to explore the ideas of light and darkness in our faith. And we're going to do that by looking at three main ideas. They are listed on the screen here. First, we're going to look at what God's response to us is when we find ourselves in darkness. Then we're going to look at what God's rescue plan is, how he will attempt to get us out of darkness. And then finally, we're going to look at what our response should be to being rescued. And for the purpose of this lesson, I'd like to do something a little different. I'm going to break Isaiah 49 into two halves, and I'm actually going to start in the second half. We're going to start in verse 14, because this is where Israel actually finds themselves in darkness. And so we can explore what God's response is to Israel as they find themselves in darkness. I'll read the passage from my Bible, but we'll also put it up here on the screen. Feel free to read along. Again, we're going to start in verse 14, right in the middle. Verse 14 starts, but Zion said, and we know Zion is just another name for Israel. So Israel starts by saying, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And now God responds. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers, and those who laid you waste, they go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see, they all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on as an ornament, you shall bind them on as a bride does." Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement, of your sadness, will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? "'Behold, I was left alone. From where have all these come?' Thus says the Lord God, "'Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet.'" Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you. And I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine, then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Point one, God's response to our darkness. Now, we see in these verses, and really the entire book of Isaiah, that Israel finds itself surrounded by darkness. You could say they're in a proverbial cave, like the miners in Chile. And I would like to argue, to provide some context today, that there's really two types of darkness that they find themselves in, and really that we can find ourselves in at times as well. And you can see them on the screen here. The first one is spiritual darkness. Now, spiritual darkness occurs when we are separated from God. So the farther we are from our light source, the darker it will seem. And what separates us from God is the same today as it was in the Old Testament, it's sin spiritual darkness is always our doing. This is an essential point in one of Isaiah's main ideas throughout his writings. And from the very first chapter, he makes that point clear. In uh, Isaiah 1, 4, this is what Isaiah says. uh, They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Notice the subject of each of these sentences. It's they, not God who is doing the actions. It is they who are to blame for their estrangement or distance from God. And so it is in chapter 49, Israel finds themselves in spiritual darkness, and it's their fault. The second type of darkness we see in Isaiah, uh, which helps provide some context to the chapter 49, is what I call earthly darkness. It's not an official name. I just made these things up. Uh, But Earthly darkness is different than spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness is measured by our distance from God, whilst uh, earthly darkness is measured by our close proximity to sin, or the darkness of the world. And just to be clear, kind of side note here, you can have one or the other, right? I've seen Christians who are walking close with Christ and they just are in a horrible situation. Maybe it's an abusive home. Maybe it's a war-torn country, but the earthly darkness surrounds them even though they're in spiritual light. and vice versa right we've seen people who are just living their best life and yet they feel like something is missing and absent because they are far from god now we learn from isaiah that earthly darkness is getting closer and closer to the people of israel here in chapter 49 the earthly darkness throughout the book of isaiah is often represented by babylon and we know that the time that babylon is coming is getting closer and closer and according to both isaiah and the history books this will indeed be a dark time for israel it'll be a time of destruction kidnapping death rape fire exile slavery and cultural genocide and so israel finds itself in a place now of extreme darkness because they have a chosen to be separated from god and b because babylon has chosen not to distance themselves from israel and so it's in this context complete darkness that we learn more about God's nature. And I'd like to point out at least three things that I think we can take away from our scripture, our passage today about God's nature. They're up on the screen now. The first thing I think we can learn is that God promises to never forget us in our time of darkness, right? Remember how it starts out in verse 14, God, you have forsaken me. And look how God responds in verse 15 and 16. He responds with two really beautiful, amazing metaphors, and I'll point out each one. Uh, First, in uh, verse 15, God compares himself to a loving mother, and I think this is just a really comforting idea, especially when I find myself in times of darkness, because if you think about it, let's say you really were trapped in a cave, and you could only tell one person in this world where you were. I would tell my mother. Now, some of you might think that's a bad idea. You might be saying, well, I'd probably tell like a cave explorer Or, like an Army Ranger or Indiana Jones, right? These people could rescue me. But what if they attempt to rescue you and they fail? Are you sure they're gonna spend the rest of their lives devoted to making sure everyone knows you're still in that cave? I don't think so. And that's why I'd choose my mom. It's also why this is such a beautiful reminder of God's heart and his heart for his people. God will never forget us in our time of darkness. The second metaphor comes from verse 16, and here we see that God says that he has engraved you on the palm of his hands. Now, I want you to notice what this verse does not say. First, it does not say that he wrote you or his name on your hands, because we know if, even if you put permanent marker on your hands, enough showers, and that marker is going to go away, right? No, it says engraved, and it translates better to carved. He's literally carved you into his hands. And he doesn't actually say that he wrote your name on his hands. It says, look, take a look, it says he wrote you, all of you, your sin, your hopes, your dreams, your struggles, your giftings, all of you is right there on his hands. Even if, he want, uh, even if you wanted him to forget you, he's made it impossible through this act of love and sacrifice. It ensures that you will re- forever remain in his sight and on his mind. The second point here is that God provides you with hope in times of darkness. Uh, In verses 17 through 23, God paints this really beautiful picture of a future hope for Israel. It's a time when his people will not only be restored to him, but they will be so numerous that there won't be enough room in Israel to hold them. And Israel will say, verse 21, Behold, I was left alone from where have all these come? And so what seems impossible in their time of darkness and loneliness, God points Israel to a distant future that's filled with hope. This is similar to the promise he made to Abraham. Remember, God told him that his descendants would outnumber the stars. And when did he tell him that? When he couldn't conceive a single child, right? In Abraham's darkest time, God points him to a future hope, a future light. And he's doing the same thing here. He's telling Israel one day, Your walls can't contain all of the people in my kingdom. And when is he telling Israel? Right before Babylon is about to come. Now, it's hard to see the light, especially when we're so focused on our own situation, which often happens when we are in darkness. I think it's why in verse 18, God says to lift up our eyes around and see. So even if you are feeling like you have just been in a, a bad place, if you're in darkness, I think that verse could be speaking to you today. Stop focusing so much on what your situation looks like and rest in the future hope. Death and destruction will be reversed. Life and light will one day fill his kingdom. The last point here is that God is the ultimate judge of earthly darkness, The chapter ends with severe judgment on those who bring earthly darkness to Israel. In verse 26, the Babylonians are left devouring one another, and it is clearly of God's doing. While this verse is certainly dark, the fact that God is our ultimate judge, I think, is a really important source of light for all of us. Think about it. If there was no heavenly, godly justice, all of us would feel obligated to seek our own revenge to seek our own form of justice. But as Martin Luther King famously said, an eye for for an eye leaves everyone blind. Right back where you started in darkness. The fact that we can trust God to be the ultimate judge will allow us to escape our darkness with our vision still in sight. So what do these reverses reveal about God's nature? They remind us that God's ultimate plan is not to forsake us in our time of darkness but to restore us to him, to bring his people back to the light. The next verses, the first half of Isaiah, is going to tell us a little bit more about how he plans to do this. And this is going into now the second point, which is God's rescue plan. So let's turn now to Isaiah, uh, the first half, verses 1 through 13. And God is going to promise promise us a way out of the darkness. These verses can get a little bit confusing uh, because Isaiah is introducing a new speaker here, someone called the servant of the Lord, uh, and, it is, uh, uh, and, and we're going to learn that this servant of the Lord is going to play an important role in leading God's people out of darkness. So uh, verse one, let's read more about the servant of the Lord. <clears throat> Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense, my reward, with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And now in verse 8, God turns his direction, uh, speaking now back to the people of Israel. God says, In a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and the west, and these from the land of Syene. sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. All right. Before we jump in uh, to the first half of uh, Isaiah 49, just a quick overview of of the uh, first seven verses. Uh, These first seven verses, I think we can go to the next slide, are often referred to as a servant song. And there's four of these servant songs scattered throughout the second half of Isaiah. We saw the first servant song in Isaiah 42. So if you were here a couple months ago, You may have learned a little bit about them, but I'll just do a very brief reminder. Uh, Basically, if you were to put all the servant songs together and make one big song, uh, I think what you would see is you would see an answer to the essential question that hovers over the book of Isaiah. And that essential question is this. How will God's people be restored back into a relationship with their creator? We see all throughout Isaiah, they seem so far from God. How can they possibly come back together? How will they get out of darkness? And Isaiah's answer is to introduce this servant of the Lord in scripture who will one day undertake a rescue mission that will restore God's people and bring salvation to the nations. And so as we uh, try to learn about God's rescue plan, the first question we should ask is, well, who is this servant? Of God's people that will restore them and bring them back into relationship. What I'm going to do is I'm going uh, to answer that question, the who question, I'm going to go through the seven verses really quick, and I'll give clues that are from the verses. You can read along in your Bible if you want, or you can kind of just look up here at the clues that uh, the Bible gives us of who is this servant of the Lord that will rescue God's people out of darkness. Starting in verse one, we get two clues. And you can take a look here for yourself, right? I'm not making these up. But verse one, it suggests that the servant is going to have far-reaching influence. His impact will impact the whole world. It also suggests that the servant will be born of a woman. Verse two suggests that the servant would be a prophet whose words would leave a mark on the world, but also one whose identity would largely be hidden during his time on earth, like an arrow in the quiver. Verse 3 tells us that the servant would come with the primary purpose to glorify God. This is the same purpose in which the nation of Israel was created. And we actually see in verse 3, again, if you have your Bibles, you can see uh, for yourselves, uh, in verse 3, the servant of the Lord is actually referred to as Israel. He's called Israel. And this creates certainly some confusion. Jewish scholars might point to this verse as evidence that the servant is literally Israel, as in God's chosen people. Christian scholars, however, would argue that the servant is called Israel because he is coming to fulfill the task that Israel could not. In other words, he's the true Israel. Verse 4 provides some valuable insight into the nature of this servant's mission. It's going to look like he has labored in vain, But even in the face of this perceived failure, our servant of the Lord will press on and trust in God's plan. Verse five, I think, provides further evidence of a singular Messiah who will create a path to redemption for the people of Israel, referred to as the sons of Jacob. In verse five, it says that this servant is going to restore Israel back to God. I think most Christians would read this, especially if you're familiar with the Old Testament, and you would ask, well, how the heck is Israel going to restore itself? They certainly seem incapable of doing it at this point in the Old Testament. Verse 6, which is especially important for our lesson today, it's where our lesson's title comes from, uh, this verse does something really awesome, especially for all of us in this room. It expands the servant's mission beyond the walls of Israel. It says that his salvation will reach the ends of the earth. He will be a light to the nations." And the final verse suggests that the servant will be rejected by his own people before ultimately being honored by other nations. Now, if you think the answer to the riddle, who is the servant of the Lord, is Jesus, you're not alone. I think Paul the apostle thought the same thing. In Acts 26, when he was arrested and he had to plea his case in front of, in front of King Agrippa, he says, I stand here testifying saying nothing but what the prophet said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles, the nations. Here, Paul is clearly connecting Jesus to the prophecies we find in verses 5 and 6 in chapter 49 and other places in Isaiah. Simeon, this is the old guy at the temple at the beginning of Luke, who sees baby Jesus and holds him in his arms, thinks something similar. When he looks at Jesus, he says this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And if we're still unsure about who this rescuer, this servant of the Lord is, we can just look what Jesus says. He says, I am the light of the world in John 8. So, if Jesus is the who to the rescue plan, let's turn our attention quickly to the how. How would the servant of the Lord rescue Israel and all the world from darkness? And here we turn our attention back to verse 6. It's not on the screen now. Uh, It says, God will make his servant a light to the nation so that his salvation will reach the ends of the earth. Now, according to commentaries, the Hebrew in the verse doesn't say that the servant will bring salvation. This is really important. It says that he is salvation. God is sending his servant who is salvation. In other words, Jesus didn't come to earth simply to bring us a light in our time of darkness, he is the light. And he's not here to simply point us to a way out of our cave. He is the way out. And if we cling to him, we will never be in darkness again. This is the good news. That's where you're supposed to say amen. There you go. All right. So we know who will rescue us. We know how. Now let's look at the what. What will our life look like? Once we've been rescued. And here we turn to our final six verses that we read today, verses eight through through 13. They paint a beautiful picture of a life in light. Starting in verse nine, we see a people who have been restored from darkness. It says, To those who are in darkness, appear. I want us to take a second and just consider what a beautiful command this is. It reminds me a little bit of the original creation story. God is speaking light back into existence, but this time he's speaking to us, to you, to them. Then in the remaining verses, we see what their restored life looks like. God's people are depicted as a flock led by a good shepherd. They have been freed from the dark prison of their sin, brought into green pastures, and given a chance to drink from a living water. This is the living hope of the servant of the Lord. Verse 12 reminds us who this new life is intended for. Behold, they will come from afar. In other words, everyone. And how should we respond to this beautiful display of grace and hope and light? Well, verse 13 tells us, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. So there it is, God's rescue plan he will provide a light to the nations, a light that will be our salvation and bring us to a promised land. So what should our response be to this good news? Point three, our response to being rescued. Now, moving into this third and final point, I want us to consider one last time the cave analogy. I've been talking about caves on and off throughout this Uh, Lesson. But now, what I want us to do is, I want us to consider the cave as it relates to our own story. For Christians, if you are a Christ follower, the story goes something like this We were all born into the cave, and we lived our early lives in darkness. And then, at some point, by God's grace, we became aware of the darkness around us. And more importantly, we became aware of our inability to get ourselves out of that darkness. And eventually, we, became, uh, we came to believe that Jesus was the only way out. And so we asked him to save us. In his mercy, we were rescued and restored, and now we're learning to live our new lives in the light of our Father. It's a beautiful story, and we should never get tired of hearing it. But as we take a moment to rejoice in the divine work of our Savior, I also want us to take a moment to consider those who are still in the cave. While some are content to sit in darkness, many, I would argue, spend considerable time trying to find a way out of their darkness. Remember my first point today with its little history lesson. We were made for light. We were created to be in light, so it's only natural that we spend our lives trying to find it, whether it's through sun gods or something else. Now, some try to do this on their own, and others put their hope in things like money, personal happiness, or false religion. But all of these, as we know, just lead to an artificial light. But all of these people, 5.4 billion, I think, if you Google how many people are not Christians in this world. Don't quote me on that. It's not in my notes. Billions. All of them, though, They only have one hope of getting out of that cave. And it's a hope that you all possess. It's the hope of Jesus. Now consider how your current connection is to the cave. When you got out, when you were saved, what did you do? Did you thank God for rescuing you and then walk away from the cave to enjoy your time in the light? If you did, I wouldn't blame you. Do you think about the cave today? Do you think about the people who are in darkness? Do you lament for them? And before you answer these questions, I want us to consider one final thing. Let's consider Paul's response to his own rescue. It's depicted in Acts 26. This is where Paul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And if you're familiar with the story, we know that Jesus appears to him as a blinding what? Light. And his encounter with Jesus literally leaves him blinded. And when his eyes are eventually opened, he goes from darkness to light, and he never sees the world in the same way. Rescued from his own cave, his response is to devote the rest of his life to his Savior's rescue mission. Look at what Paul says in Acts 13. This is where he's, he's explaining his 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 uh his mission to a bunch of non-believers. And he quotes directly from our passage today. Paul says, For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See what Paul does here? He takes that servant song and he makes it his own song. It becomes the soundtrack of his life and the anthem of his life's mission. So, I've just asked you to consider a lot of things, and now I'll come to the conclusion. What should our response be to being rescued? Uh, I would like to encourage us to be more like Paul, to be transformed by the light. And Harvest, what a unique opportunity we have as a truly international church to bring light to the nations to collectively live out Isaiah 49, 6, and bring his light to those who are still in darkness. So I'll end with a few ideas, nothing big, nothing groundbreaking, but hopefully these ideas will get us all moving in the right direction. Number one, let's move closer to the cave. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but this is what makes our faith so unique. It doesn't just pull us out of the cave and have have us find some quiet corner in the earth to bask in the light like some religions do. And it also doesn't take us out of the cave and then say to us, hey, if you're not good, I'm throwing you back in like some other religions do. No, it doesn't do that. Instead, it takes us out and then it promises us that we are safe for eternity. And then something awesome happens. Our rescuer shares his light with us. And he asks all of us to consider going back, back into the darkness to tell others about our rescuer. Paul puts it this way in Acts. He says, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Harvest, this is something we all should be thinking about. Another thing we could do, again, really easy, really practical, is don't forget those who are still trapped in that cave. This means you should be praying for them. So here's a practical step we can all take. In fact, right now, I'll give you just 10 seconds to get started on it. Think about someone who's in the cave. Think about someone who's in darkness. Think about someone who doesn't know that there is a rescuer waiting to rescue them if they would just cry out to them, to him. Think, Think of a specific person's name. You can write their name on the inside of your Bible, on your phone, on a piece of paper, stick it in your wallet but don't forget them. Pray for them constantly. As Paul says in Romans, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. We should be doing this constantly. And the final thing is just let your light shine. I know that sounds like a kid's song, but it's such good advice. It simply means that you need to strengthen your walk with Christ. Remember, he is the light of the world. And the closer you are to him, the more his light reflects on you. So harvest, live a light, a life that reflects Christ's light. Live a life that is radically generous, patient, and long-suffering. And then when people wonder why you live that way, point them to your light source and say, it's not me, it's my rescuer. Or, as Paul reminds us again in Romans, the, the night is, is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, and put on our armor of light. Every Sunday, we end our service with the same five words. We'll do it again today. I'll be the one who says them in about 10 minutes. You know what they are if you've been here. You are loved and sent. Today, I'm gonna challenge you all, when you hear those words, I want you to think about what we learned today. Think about the amazing God we serve, a God of light who refused to forget you in your time of darkness. Harvest, you are loved and sent. You are loved so much that God sacrificed his own son, the ultimate servant of the Lord, to rescue you when you are in darkness. And now you are sent back into the darkness with a light that cannot be overcome. What a beautiful rescue story this is. Thank you.